so I would say to your young women, don't be afraid that you're gonna change who you are, but you do have to adapt, adjust, and be agile. So that's a little ditty I've got. It actually starts with adjust. Adjust your expectations, adapt yourself to the situation and be agile enough to, to, to thrive there and make the impact that you wanna make. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast with your blacksmiths, Tara O'Brien and Ron Duran Jr. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. It's time to harden up. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. So Sandy, after 36 years uh, in the Coast Guard with one incredible resume, let me tell you, I'm so impressed just reading through it. And you have a ton of education, very unusual education and, and life experiences in general. And then, of course, you retired from the military just two years ago and since then have been working in the realm of leadership and definitely writing your book, which comes out on June 1st. Can you start us off by telling us about your book? And did you did you always know you were going to write it? Well, yes, uh, Tara and Ron, thank you so much first for having me on the show. I'm really honored to be your guest tonight. And I had been thinking of writing a book on leadership ever since I was a, a junior officer, a young person in the Coast Guard. So it would have been in the age of about the mid to late 20s. And I'd already had six years at sea by that time. And I had come to the... Coast Guard headquarters for my first shore duty, but I went up to be the secretary's military aide, and there was a number of young people being brought into the jobs up there uh, about my age, and uh, I made friends with a advanced person. Her name was Shane, and I told her, you know, Shane, I've got these great experiences. I've been at sea for six years. Now I find myself by chance, you know, not, not any of my own credit being called up to serve for the secretary of transportation, our service secretary for the Coast Guard. And I, I said, I want to write a book on, on leadership just to give back a little bit for all the Coast Guards show me about how to lead and the opportunities you can have. And she says, you know, Sandy, and she had known that I'd been the first, one of the first women in the Coast Guard to come out of the Coast Guard Academy and I served three of those six years at sea. We're on icebreakers, going to Antarctica, in fact, in the Arctic. She says, you've got to call that book Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass. And uh, I never forgot that. And I kept thinking about writing a book for the next couple of decades while I continued my Coast Guard career. And I only learned more and more leadership lessons over that time. And that title never left my mind, Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass. So I set out to write that book I've been thinking about for about 30 years when I retired in 2018 and made it my mission in retirement because of course in the military, we all have to have missions. So my mission was to write the book and it's a book on character-centered leadership. The book is called Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, colon, Leading in Uncharted Waters. And that kind of goes to the Antarctic and the Arctic. I spent 12 years of my career at sea. So lots of um, time on the water. And the book is full of leadership lessons and frameworks and models that are told through stories. So I have a lot of stories as most of us who go to sea, you've all heard sea stories. And I've got plenty of those that tell the leadership lessons in a narrative way so that people can relate to them and understand them. 
you know, something I do with my clients and also with my students is I, as I have them write an ethos and, you know, the ethos is the Greek word for character. So what, you know, that seems to be the focus of your book is character. Can you talk to us about not only what that means to you, but maybe reflect on, on what do you think with the state of leadership right now, and, and let's just use the United States. I think we could say this is global, but the state of leadership in the United States, are we, are we missing leaders of character? What do you think? The book being about character-centered leadership and uh, what does that mean to me and what is our country maybe yearning for when it comes to leadership? It's hard to define leadership. Every single person you ask is gonna have a different definition of leadership. I think some people are born with some innate skills that you think of when you think of a leader, but everybody, regardless of how they're born, can learn leadership and become a better leader. And I think that's important to set forth right in the beginning when you're talking about leadership and and character. I think that character is another word that you have to talk about because you can be leaders of good character or leaders of bad character. So obviously you want to have core values-based leadership where your leader is has got core values, personal core values. They have internalized those core values. They live those core values. Those core values are their North Star, the moral compass that they steer on every day. And once a leader is grounded in those core values, then they're going to be more inclined to do the morally right thing, especially when circumstances get challenging and you've got to make tough choices. Every time you've got one of those tough choices, a leader has the opportunity to either increase her character or to diminish her character by the decisions she makes. And I think that's important part of character is you've got to internalize those core values and live them. And as far as what our nation needs today, I think that, you know, people are fond of saying more than ever, but if you look back at history, there's been an awful lot of bad times when there's been character needed. So I try to avoid saying now more than ever, but it's easy to say, and it makes sense because we are living in our times. We do need leaders of character, people who are centered on values and, you know, who are putting the greater good of other people, the institution they work for, the organization they work for, and their families and society, they're putting those other entities ahead of themselves. So to me, that's what the nation needs is character-centered leadership leaders who are focused on their people, their organization and the society and making it all a better place. And too often people fall victim to self-centered hubris and selfishness and other traits that make them stray from that focus. Or nowadays we have a divided society where people are so convinced that they're right, that they have given up seeking the truth. They don't care about seeking the truth and that whole exercise we go through in academia. They just want to be validated. And I call that, I mean, the word for that is confirmation bias. So they just wanna be confirmed by others who think the same way. A leader of character wants to hear the other side of the story and wants to be curious and inquire and seek that truth about what somebody else is saying, to to seek the truth between the two different sides, not just put down the other person's viewpoints in order to elevate their own. So I think that's one way that we need 
leaders of character in our society today, people willing to take a diverse workforce and ever more increasingly diverse workforce, diverse society, and understand that diversity, the root of the word <laughs> means divide. If you're gonna bring that together and instead of digging a trench, um, dredging the river between both sides, you build a bridge across it, you've got to be able to have character-centered leadership that cares about other people, that's curious about their beliefs and wants to understand them, not undermine somebody else's beliefs. Well, that's, uh, I, I like that because uh, I like that you finish it with that because at the end of the day, core values are only as, as I don't know, valuable or, or useful as you internalizing it. And it's got to be part of your, you know, everyday life. And, and I think that's where a lot of people miss the boat with core values. But I think that it's, it's so important that we have those, and not only at, at, at the level of an organization, but also on a personal level, understanding what your core values are, I think is important. Let me see if I can spin this a little bit because I feel like I was saying off the air that it's so much fun doing this podcast because I, I get to know all these great people and Sandy, you're one of those that, that as I was doing research for the podcast, I, I felt like I got to know you a little bit. And I also realized the other great thing about the podcast is you're part of our tribe. And what I mean by that is you talk about doing hard things just like we do. It's going to be a little different context, but you, you see value in that. And one of the things that, that I get asked, I've run 50 miles before and I, people ask me, how do you run 50 miles? And, you know, I, I like to say you, you just go like one aid station at a time as you run that race and, and you just kind of break it into chunks. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to quote a very famous Philadelphian philosopher, Rocky Balboa, one step at a time, one punch at a time, one round at a time. That's what, that's what Rocky would say. And I think you have a similar idea on this idea of taking one step at a time and that's how you get through hard things. Why don't you tell us more about that? I guess I could start anywhere in my life from the time I was a child on how I learned how to <laughs> take hard things and get through them and come out stronger. First of all, I'll say I love hard things and I love the fact that I've had the opportunity, ne often never asked for, to go through and endure hard times Looking back, I would never change anything that I've had to do in my career that was hard because it created in me who I am today and built the character. If I'd had some easy road, I would never be the person I am today. And I, I, there's this famous quote that I guess is attributed to unknown, but it, it advises, prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. <laughs> and I remember when I was at the Coast Guard Academy as superintendent, we had all these cadets, a thousand young people between the ages of 17 and 23. And uh, we had helicopter parents. And then we come up with a new name. Well, no, they're snowplow parents. They're bulldozer parents. <laughs> they're trying to move everything out of the way. So their kid has the easiest path. And um, you want people to have a challenging path and do hard things. And some of the hard things, I'll just jump right into the you know, something that's um, more present <laughs> than when I was a kid. But when I came to the Coast Guard Academy in 1978, I entered there and I had been a pretty good student in high school. I came from a pretty good sized high school and was in the top 5% of my class. And I was very 
shy though and introverted. So I didn't have the greatest self-confidence, but I worked really hard while other kids might've been out enjoying a, a Saturday night on the town in high school. I wasn't, I was home writing my five paragraph themes and doing my algebra and trying to keep up because I had to work harder than other people. I wasn't quite as gifted with the academic ability, even though I did well. So I got to the Coast Guard Academy and I'd um, done pretty well in high school. And I found I was very average because everybody else coming into the Coast Guard Academy had been at the top of their class, had been an athlete or been captain of something. And all of a sudden I was just average and it was very hard for me. The academics were very, very hard. And uh, so was the challenge they put that first summer. It's like a boot camp summer and they're testing you making everything as hard as possible. In those days, the goal was kind of try to make you quit because the idea was being, we want the strongest ones to survive. And, and the 50% 50, 50 was the attrition rate in those days. Now, the attrition rate's only about 10, 10% over the four years, maybe maybe uh, 12, but in those days it was 50, five zero. I had a little saying that I come up with where if I look at this as a four year endurance run, uh, 50 miles, I'll never make it. So I started saying, I'll take it one push up at a time, one meal at a time, one day at a time. And I can get through a push up, I can get through a meal, I can go to bed and I can get through that next day. But getting through four years, I would have quit because four years would have been overwhelming. So I learned to chunk out little pieces. And then I started to realize as that pattern repeated throughout my life, not just at the Coast Guard Academy, but other hard things I did, that this is a great recipe for success. You just take things one chunk at a time and you get through that. And I've counseled a lot of people on that because they look at their life and there's so much out there. It's overwhelming. I'm like, okay, you've got 10 things up here that are stressing you. Pick one and pull it down, examine it, get a plan for it, put it aside, pick the next one. So do them one at a time and then you mitigate your stress. And I found that a pretty good formula for getting through hard times is to chunk it out a little bit at a time. As I'm listening to you say that, all I can think of is the pandemic. And I'm curious if that mentality for you has helped you get through the last year. And also if you have any advice for people based on your experience of how they can get through, because they don't have the end of the four year mark like you did, there's actually no end mark. Right. And I know that can play a little bit of a, even more of a hardship psychologically, but what do you think about that? Yeah. Thanks for the question. And especially the psychological part, because to go back to the Academy real quick, before I go forward to the COVID, the um, stress at the Coast Guard Academy and many other kinds of training that are very arduous is in the unknown is in the schedule. So when you're a cadet going through the summer training program, or when you're in boot camp, or when you're in basic underwater dive training for a SEAL program or something. You don't know what the schedule is going to be the next day. They keep that mental stress on you. So if you knew this is what you had to do the next day, you could start working it out in your mind and say, okay, 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 and get through that. But you don't, you don't have any idea when you wake up, what's going to happen to you that day. So the stress is in the unknown and you can't control the unknown. So I've got a part in my book that talks about how, if possible, people should try to focus on what they can control, not the things they can't control. So there's, there's probably only a 
a third of what happens to you in life that you can control. <laughs> There's another two thirds that's nothing you can control. There's a, a part of that's what what is chance, circumstance, and fate. And you have to just understand that you got to focus most of your time on the smaller things that you can control and not fall into the trap of worrying about the bigger part of the pie that you can't control. And so what I would say for people going through COVID times, for instance, is that I've got another model or framework of, of exhaustion and stress and tiredness. And that's looking at the different dimensions that can come in. So I realized this a little bit later in my career that I was tired all the time, but I, and I thought, okay, I'm tired. I need to sleep more, but really it wasn't just physical exhaustion. It's physical, it's mental, it's emotional, and it's spiritual. And you're not always depleted in all those four areas. You might be depleted emotionally on the COVID, but maybe spiritually you can spend more time in that domain. And if you can elevate your spiritual wellness, fitness, then it's not so important that your emotional fitness is low or your mental fitness. Maybe you, you take a book and you read something that is meaningful and you learn. So you increase your mental fitness, or maybe you go take a walk and you increase your physical fitness. And so you look and try to analyze on those four domains where you're low, stressed, exhausted, depleted, and then you try to raise others that you have control over because you don't have any control maybe over that one. So that's kind of a formula that I came up with on how to manage exhaustion and, and depletion. And we all face that. And if we look at it just as, oh, I'm exhausted and I'm at the end of my rope and I can't do anything, we will be stressed. But if we look at it in different phases where you've got those different components of exhaustion and depletion, and you look at balancing them, like playing an instrument, <laughs> balancing out the levers, then I think you have more control that way. And you can shape your own fate better, mental imaging. No, I love that. You speak a lot about perseverance and you earlier said you almost quit at the Academy. And I know there's another, at least, at least one more story out there where you almost quit in your career. What is it? I mean, how for, for all of us, I mean, I, we've all been faced with that. Right. And, and sometimes we, we, we do quit. I, I do believe there are, there are appropriate times to quit. That's my belief, but, but for you, what keeps you going when you're on the edge of saying, man, I just don't want to do this anymore. And I want to quit. What keeps you moving forward? There's two slightly different things at play here. <laughs> That's a really academic term, isn't it? Things <laughs> There's perseverance and there's motivation. So when I had an incident where I had my resignation letter written when I was a young lieutenant, I was on the Coast Guard cutter Katmai Bay up in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, that's Lake Superior. And I had reported in to command that icebreaker. And I was the first woman to ever command a ship on the Great Lakes of any kind, I think even in the merchant fleet included, not just the Coast Guard. And it was a crew of about 17. So a 140 foot ship, not that big, but an icebreaker that escorted iron ore carriers down from Lake Superior to down the river and down to Indiana where the iron ore was turned into steel. But I was sent up to take command of that boat. And I had come to that job from being the Secretary of Transportation's military aide, the job I told you about earlier. And Secretary Skinner 
attended my change of command. And it's not something normal in the military that the service chief would come to a lieutenant, a, a junior officer's change of command. It would be way beneath him. He'd probably go to the commandant of the Coast Guards, the four stars, and change of command, but nobody lower. So my boss, when it was all over, who was the an 06, which is a senior officer, he was in charge of the whole operation there in Sault Ste. Marie, including the ships and other pieces of the business. He looked at me and said, you're just the secretary's fair-haired golden girl. We'll see how long you last. Wow. And, I'm like, <laughs> I, and I was still this pretty shy, unconfident person because I just was born that way. I was an introvert and I was shy and I was always a little bit worried about doing the right thing. And I was very humble. I never had any ego. I just wasn't born with one. And so it wasn't like I was given off these airs that I knew it all or anything, but he made it hard on me. And, and, and there came a time when I was ready to quit, you know, and my whole world had gone into a tunnel vision and I was, had failed to look up <laughs> out at the entire skyline around me. And I was just pulled deeper and deeper every day into this tunnel vision of how hard this was trying to please this boss who was making my life miserable. But one day it kind of let up and I never knew until years later, but my chief bosun mate, which is an enlisted person, a senior enlisted person on the boat, he had gone up to the captain and closed the door to the captain's office behind him and said, captain, you've got to lay off our skipper. You're picking on her and everyone knows it. And it's just interfering with the work of the of the ship, uh, it's causing problems. And uh, he said, she's doing a good job and she's uh, trying to manage this and nobody's, everyone's losing. And uh, the captain, I mean, this, this enlisted person went in there to stand up for me and face down a senior officer to do it. And I tell that story because it's uh, a cool one because you can be mentored by a junior person just as well as mentored by a senior person. In this case, my boss who should have been mentoring me was doing the opposite. And this younger, more junior person was standing up for me. And uh, that mattered. And I didn't know that for months or even years later, but I knew the pressure went off and, and I kept persevering. And eventually within months or maybe a year, he, he was out of the Coast Guard. So he had been in a long time. He'd come to the end of his time and, and retired. And it occurred to me, wow, I almost put my retirement letter in, my resignation letter in. And meanwhile, this guy is now moved on. If I had retired, re sorry, resigned, he would have won and I would have been the loser. And I said, I almost gave that all up because I got compressed into a tunnel vision mindset. So I really learned a lot from that. And I took on this, this saying, it's a silly little saying, but this too will pass. I'm like, oh my gosh, because you know how in the military, Terry, you know, this permanent change of station, we call it PCS. And so I, I, I said, I used to tell this at speeches afterwards. I said, if you have anything hard going on, just keep in mind, this too will PCS because either you're going to change stations or the person you're having a problem with is going to change stations or retire, but things change. And yet you get tunnel visioned and focused into this, this condition, you've allowed your mind to become um, too focused and not broadened and not look up. So that was something I, I, I really learned when I was on that ship and, and uh, persevered and realized the power of perseverance. Now, why did I stay in the Coast Guard 40 years? That's motivation, maybe. What motivated me to 
keep on staying in because I could have said it's not a matter of perseverance or not. I'm just done. 20 years comes, I'm retirement eligible. Maybe I'll go on and do something else like you did, Tara, when you left at 12 years. So it wasn't that you weren't persevering. So what motivated me to stay in the Coast Guard was continually having the opportunity to rediscover my passion and purpose as I moved up. And so when I first came in as a cadet, I had a certain passion and purpose, but then that matured over time and the Coast Guard allowed me to, to change course, to pursue different passions and different purposes that became important to me. And I, I, I developed those through continuing education. So I'm a big advocate of lifelong learning. So going to get a couple of M, uh, master's degrees, reading all the time, keeping motivated about what the opportunities were in, in, uh, in the people of the Coast Guard. All that motivated me to stay in. And I do think it's different than perseverance. So I think that's important for your listeners. Mm, I think I want to stay there for a minute and take advantage of the fact that I think military women bring a very unique look at, at leadership and specifically gender equality leadership. I think it's, it's very unique and it's very different than what we see and hear a lot of. And I know that we've, we've had guests like Shannon Huffman Polson and Marissa Porges on, on the podcast as well that feel very similar to the way you do. And I want to say, you know, if you, you have had a lot of firsts in your career, you know, the first women to do this or the first woman to do that and in command quite a few times of a mostly male organization. What, what thoughts do you have for women trying to move up the chain that might be thinking of quitting, that might be getting overwhelmed like you did earlier in your career? What advice do you have for them when it comes to finding that balance, that mindful balance of gender equality leadership and how to really empower themselves to press on the way you did? That's a great question. And one thing that I will say is I always tried to outrun being the first. I didn't want to be the first woman, this or that. But because I was in the third class of women at the Coast Guard Academy, I was therefore never going to outrun that because in the military, we advance in rank by time in service a little bit. Of course, there's promotion boards that you have to pass, but you still can't really get ahead. So I was going to be one of the first, but I just wanted to be another Coast Guard person, not another, not the first female or a woman, I would rather not have had my gender matter. And I made sure that when I reported to a unit that my gender didn't matter, that I was doing the work. I, I really don't know if I agree that women have to work harder than men to prove themselves. I think that everybody going to a new unit, so take a ship, <laughs> you're going to go on to a, a great big ship of some kind with all kinds of systems on it, say a 418 foot national security cutter like the Coast Guard has. I mean, everybody going on board a ship like that is gonna to have to prove themselves and work their hardest and do the job. Are some people gonna get looked at a little differently? Yeah, but it probably isn't gonna be because you're, you're the woman. But I never let anyone define me as a woman. And, and that's how I was defined. I'm like, no, I'm a Coast Guard officer, I'm a sailor, uh, a cutterman, but don't call me, you know, don't define me by my gender. So I would offer to women, don't let anyone define you by your gender and don't let them tell you that, that 
this is going to be really hard for you or you can't do it. I mean, I actually kind of stubborn. <laughs> so when somebody would say that to me, that this is going to be really hard. I'm not sure anyone looked me in the face and says, you can't, said you can't do it, but they would warn me it's gonna be hard. I would just get hunkered down and my stubbornness would come out and I would say, well, I'm going to prove it. I mean, my dad, I started that with my father who kind of was really hard on us kids and tried to manage our expectations by telling us we probably would never achieve anything we set out to because there was a lot of competition in the world. And so I always felt like I was um, trying to disprove, prove my father wrong. And so I think that that's a tactic. You can frame your own thoughts. You don't have to let somebody else frame them for you. And I would encourage people just stop. If somebody makes you feel like you aren't going to succeed or, or you feel that way yourself, stop and, and, and take the responsibility to reframe your own thoughts because you're responsible for your thoughts. And I'll give you an example <laughs> of um, responsible for your own thoughts and your own actions. So from the time that I was younger, all the way up until I was a senior officer, up until I would say the day I retired, I would be uh, still one of the only women in the group. So I could be sitting with a comrade of the Coast Guard around a big table up in his situation room and I could be the only woman in that group, including those on the video. <laughs> and there were times when nobody was gonna take a break and turn to me because I was a woman and say, oh, Sandy, what do you think? And a lot of times people nowadays are like, well, no one asked me what I thought. And they're, they're like, no one cares about me. It's a hostile environment because we women can't fit in. I'm like, well, what did you do to reach your hand out to be heard? And so you have to step forward and, and place your comments, make your comments instead of sitting there waiting for someone to invite you in. Yeah, sure. It's great if you're in a place uh, where somebody's inviting you to the table and making you feel welcome, but that's not really how it works in real life all the time. You've got to actually work your way in and find the right place where your comment matters and um, learn to speak for yourself. You can't always rely on somebody else to give you the chance to speak up for you. And too many women nowadays are being told that if you're not succeeding, it's because your workplace or your supervisor must be not the best. And they're not being told the other thing, which is take control of your own fate and own your own outcomes. And I say, demonstrate fortitude over fragility. <laughs> I love this book, Fortitude by Dan Crenshaw. <laughs> and I love the book, Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. So I'd encourage any woman to read those two books, even though they're written by men. But also I'd read How Women Rise by Sally Helgeson. She's got a great book that has 12 steps to help women to overcome some of the things that can be innate traits that we women have to recognize in ourselves that are often in, in us and maybe not so much in men. Gosh, I appreciate that. Let, let's, let's stay with this because Many of the things you've talked about, whether it was the captain that was riding you or, or some of the, the, I don't know, obstacles you faced, somebody might interpret that as not being fair. And you were very kind to share an advanced copy of your book. And I highlighted part of that. And you said, the playing field will never be level. And so this idea of it's not a level playing field, it's not fair. How do you, I mean, what would you add to that? I mean, how do you use that as maybe fuel for yourself? I had to 
own up and face up to the fact that playing field was never going to be level early in my life. But I really found out pretty quickly that by hard work, I could do better than the people who are more naturally gifted. And to some extent, I saw that when I started doing sports and I wasn't the strongest or the fastest, but I would work harder in, in academics. So I started to see that the kids who were going out, so I ended up graduating the top 5% of my class in high school and I was really not one of the top five smartest kids in high school, <laughs> but a lot of them were out. They didn't have to study because they were smart. They come and get good enough grade on the test. So yeah, hard work and perseverance levels the playing field of life. And I, I just, everywhere I go, that's my mantra for success is hard work and perseverance. And if you're looking for someone else to even out all those humps and bumps, you're just going to end up with no character because the, the humps and bumps on the playing field of life are what give us the character that we need when we're going to go into a tough situation to go into those uncharted waters that I talk about, you have to lead in. So it's uh, great that we have safe spaces and, and, and snowflakes and fragility and all that. But I honestly don't agree with it, with that because you're taking away opportunities for people to engage with each other, to hear things they might not agree with and to search for the meaning and the truth and, and something and to, and to resolve conflicts face-to-face -face instead of running to somebody else to, to shut you down or cancel your thoughts or whatever. People should be able to respectfully engage in discourse that helps to each side to understand. And that goes to that playing field, understanding each other. And so I'm out there on the playing field of life and I'm working hard and persevering, but am I just looking at myself? No, I'm turning around and I'm reaching out my hand to try to help the teammate who's behind me and pull that person forward, right? And, and so, and the guy ahead of me is reaching the hand back to help me come along. It's not like it's every man or woman for themselves. So I think that's really important. Hard work and perseverance, and it is, there's a big internal portion of that, but it's all about being a team and looking out for the next person. And once again, going back to a leader of character, they're not self-centered. They're externally focused on the well-being of others around them. They're going to be respectful. They're going to want to hear the other opinion, even if it's really contrary to their own beliefs. They're not going to shut that person down. And I think that this is missing in our society, that we want the, the level playing field. We want the safety of not being able to have to hear anything we don't agree with. And um, it's not going to work in the real world. There's going to be things we can't control that happen on the spot that we have to be ready to tackle and handle in a crisis situation. And crises aren't going to go away <laughs> just because we've become softer. <laughs> it's just going to be harder for us to manage them. And I think we have to keep on instilling fortitude in our people that we teach. I know you're both at a university and asking those young people to find fortitude within themselves, work hard and persevere and help each other out and help everyone to succeed. That's the best way you can level the playing field. It's funny though, Sandy, I was just, I'm coaching somebody right now who's a young woman in, in a kind of a, a first line management position. And she's trying to work on being more assertive. And, and we were just talking about this idea of 
how much self-promotion, mm. you know, do, do, does she do? And is it enough? And when is it, you know, when does it start to get into too much? So that, I don't know, it was interesting to hear you say that. that um, There's some good advice for that because I've got advice for both kinds. I've seen the women who have had to come up the hard way, but oh my goodness, sometimes they're too overbearing. So I remember having to counsel some women who weren't that junior to me when I got to be very senior, they were senior too, but they would come into a room and they would secure the best place at the table. And they actually weren't that senior. <laughs> so there was decorum to be considered. And, and they had been told, take your seat at the table. And yet they were taking the seat from somebody more senior. And it was obvious that they were trying too hard and other people were noticing, but they were blind. They're like, I've been told I should take my seat at the table. So you have to be careful. You don't go to that next level of losing situational awareness. So this is where emotional intelligence comes in. So how am I coming across? What's the tone of the room? Where do I really fit? And so for women who are on the other side of the problem, I would have to write my own fitness reports or pre prepare this report from my boss. Like I told you about, here's all I've done this week. I would pretend that I was writing or evaluating somebody else. So I would sit there with my pen or my typewriter or my computer nowadays to go through my whole career. And I would say, okay, I would zone out for a few minutes I'm writing about somebody else and I would write, start writing all the great things. And it wasn't about me. I was making it about, Hey, here's somebody else that did all this, but that was a coping mechanism for me because you've got to be able to give your boss and other people who need the information, the information on what you've done. And you don't have to come across in a shy way or an overbearing way. You can find that, that golden mean as Aristotle would say <laughs> between too much and not enough and that's a sliding mean, it, it depends on circumstances. So I think there's some exercises women can do where they do place themselves maybe in somebody else's mind and pretend they're writing about somebody else or talking about somebody else. And that helps them to frame their, their mindset so it's not so self-centric in their, in their view. I'm gonna steal that. I knew you were. I love it. I, I like it. I like it because, well, I'll be honest, Tara and I both kind of struggle with how do we self-promote ourselves and should we? And, you know, taking yourself out of the picture, you know, so to speak, maybe you can be more objective, right? And so that I think that'd be a fun thing to play around with. I like that. Well, and ask these young women to look around. So I would be a woman and, and the only woman in a meeting with men. And uh, have you ever noticed these, these situations where you've got energetic people all around the room and there's a, um, a good conversation Those going on? Those darn extroverts. Uh, <laughs> and the minute one man's mouth shuts, the other guy's already ready to open. So they're not really listening that well. And I'm like, man, how do I work my way into this? Because I want to be respectful, polite. I want to wait for a pause. I'm like, you got to like one in Rome, do as the Romans do. So you've got to just say, okay, I'm going to insert myself and I'm going to find the moment where I can insert myself to say something. And then once you've said something, people would look to you a little more often. If you don't, if you sit there quietly, you get ignored forever, right? Because you don't have a voice. So you've got to find that, that segue in and no one's going to invite you probably. 
And then no one's going to mean anything by it, but the men are already doing it. So for your young women who you're mentoring, if they look around, they'll notice that other people are already acting this way. So if they start acting that way, it's not going to be anything different. It's going to be normal. They've just been the ones who have held back thus far. And they think that they're normal because it is for them, but it's not normal for the group that they're trying to fit into, right? As far as being heard. Wow. That, that's interesting because my guidance to her was let's not, she's, she's slightly introverted. And I said, let's not turn you, let's not try to turn you into an extrovert, be authentic to who you are, but you're kind of saying when in Rome, do what the Romans do. So is that a sense of she's not being authentic Uh, or I mean, what do you, what do you think of that? I mean, because you're a shy introverted, I mean, you say I'm shy and introverted, but you somehow found a way to make this work. After this podcast, I will go and just go, yeah, exactly. I know. So, yeah. so, says, so will I. Yes, yes. I will yeah. get on, I'll get in my bathroom, I'll get on my couch, and I'll get <laughs> How Women Rise by Sally Helgeson, which is the book I'm reading now, and I'll just go, oh. Right. And my mind. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if I was an extrovert, I want the next after party, right? Yeah. So I am, I have become the person I need to be. I am still a very, very authentic person or a genuine person, depending on <laughs> what word you want to use, because I'm what you see is what you get. I wear my heart on my sleeve. But, but I think that you can still be true to yourself, but you can do what you need to do to succeed in this world. And we all have to do that. So Shakespeare said, the world is a stage and we're all actors and we all have our seven acts, right? And if you're a stage performer like Bruce Springsteen, I heard an NPR interview with him. He puts on a stage presence and he told NPR, I forget the woman who was interviewing him. I look at performances of myself and I wish I could be that guy right he said that he's this guy on stage and he says I wish I could be that guy but I am not that guy it's me on stage and look at Rob Gronkowski (laughs) he's apparently a really nice guy but when he puts on his game face with the uh, Buccaneers you don't want to be in his path (laughs) he's going to knock you down and hurt you Um, he's got his game face on you've got you've got your stage um, presence So I would say to your young women, don't be afraid that you're going to change who you are, but you do have to adapt, adjust, and be agile. So that's a little Mm. ditty I've got. It actually starts with adjust. Adjust your expectations, adapt yourself to the situation, and be agile enough to, to, to thrive there and make the impact that you want to make. Because if you're true to yourself and you're shy and quiet, you're not going to make the impact you want to make. So you've got to mm. adjust, adapt, and be agile so that you can deliver the value that your organization needs from you, the voice that you won't be able to give unless you get out of that construct you've created mm. for yourself. I like that oh, because yeah, one I of the do. things I say is you can still be an introvert, but I, I say you need to learn to step into extroversion when it it's strategically a good idea. And I think Mm -hmm. that's exactly what you're saying. I mean, Mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily say you're turning into an extrovert, but you can do that on command when you need to. So gosh, I like that. And Susan Cain says that in Quiet. If you read the book Quiet, she's very good about saying that, how she is now a great, well, I don't know if she would say a a great speaker, but she's confident. And she has developed that confidence and that speaking ability by managing the the framework that she sets for herself 
and understanding um, the psychology well enough to understand that she can still be true to herself, but be this speaker who's on stage or this confident woman who's training people and all that she's doing nowadays. I love your take on, on this. I know Ron and I both completely wholeheartedly agree with you. And I think it's a movement that's starting, but it's starting slowly. So thanks for sharing all of that. And all of the different things that we've talked about, your military service, the book that you have coming out on June 1st, all of these things that we'll have in the show notes for those of you to, to click on and find easier. How do people follow you and keep in touch and see what else you have to say and aside from buying your book? Well, thank you for asking. It's a good opportunity for me to let people know that I do have the book coming out, Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, Leading in Uncharted Waters on June 1st. It should be available for pre-order probably in mid-April. And I started a blog about two weeks ago called Leading with Character. And I got the idea from the book because the whole purpose is to give back. In fact, all the proceeds from the book will go to support the Coast Guard Academy's Institute for Leadership, where I learned my leadership. So what I want to do with a blog is give a lesson each week. So my first lesson, you'd love this. My first blog was called Do Something Hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the second blog was called The Power of Perseverance. So I'm taking leadership lessons that I learned and, and giving a five to 800 word blog every week. So I invite people to look at that and you can find all that information on my book and you can see my blog at my website, which is www.sandrastows, all one word.com. Okay. Well, we have our, our final question for you here, Sandy, and it's a tough one. It's, it's about failure and Ron and I love to dig into the concept of failure as often as possible because it's actually in, we think a great word and one to learn from. So we're going to ask you about your greatest <laughs> failure in life. If you I know that might take time to think about, but what, what do you feel your greatest failure is and, and what did you learn from it? Well, first of all, I will say that I am very proud <laughs> to be a failure. I failed so many times throughout my life. And it was many, many years ago that I heard this example that's now more common about how often Abe Lincoln failed. I took great solace in that because I had had so many little failures. So a lot of my failures were little and, and we should embrace those failures because if you don't fail, it means you're on that smooth playing field with no obstacles, no hardships, nothing. So the harder your playing field of life is, the more you're going to fail because it's a harder landscape to uh, navigate but you're going to fall. My only advice to cadets uh, and others that I've mentored is fail while you're falling forward. Don't fail because something pushed you back. <laughs> so fail forward because you're reaching so far for such a goal that you couldn't quite get it this time. And I'm also a fan of Don Quixote where the saying came, life is not about the destination, the end, but about the journey to the end. So everybody wants to just get to the destination nowadays, right? <laughs> so it's a, a new kind of a thing. Hey, why should I spend time in the sausage making? I just want to get to the end. No, <laughs> you want to enjoy the journey, the failures, and you take the little successes every day that counterbalance the little failures. So we hope we don't have big failures, <laughs> But I, I can't say I've had a massive failure because I probably wouldn't be sitting here right now, but I'll give you a fun little failure that I had. I was a senior officer. And so we're never too senior to fail, right? 
and uh, I was working for the Commandant of the Coast Guard. And I was his executive assistant, which was an important high visibility position. And I was um, responsible for helping to lead to lead the implementation of the Commandant's strategic agenda for his four-year term. And oh, it was a hard job, lots going on. We're modernizing the Coast Guard and I was busy, probably 14 to 16 hour days, never a minute's rest and coordinating all these people and programs and doing my best <laughs> at this job. And I every day would get on my bicycle to ride home <laughs> from there. And I'd be thinking, wow, it was a pretty good day. We accomplished a lot. Well, then one day I went into the commandant's office in the morning for my regular morning meeting with him. And he just kind of like looked up at me and growled at me. <laughs> and I could obviously tell he was disappointed with me. And I'm like, and he says to me, radar return, Sandy, radar return. And what that means to your audience is on a ship, and we've both been sailors, on a ship, you've got a radar <laughs> and you can, it pings and it tells you when there's a, what's up ahead. It lets you know what ships are coming that might be a danger to you, what land masses are coming. <laughs> so it's something that helps you navigate and you can see what's coming. You can, you have understanding of feedback. And so what he meant was, uh, he was a man of few words. What he meant was I wasn't giving him any res response to what I was doing. I wasn't filling him in and updating him on all that I was doing. So he presumed, you know, well, nothing's happening because my executive assistant's not telling me here's what I did today. And I was like, well, I don't want to bother him. He's so busy with what I've done, but he had a great capacity for details and one of the details, and it gave him great comfort and satisfaction to have the details. And I was trying to spare him the details. And so it was a kind of a funny failure, but it was a pretty big one because he wasn't happy with me. And what I learned was share what's going on and tell your boss what you're doing. And so I did from then on out a weekly report, radar return. Here's everything that happened this week. And I would brief him a little bit more during the day too. And man, did that become a great mentoring point for me to give to other people. Cause you have people who don't do that well at promotion or they, they, they think they're doing great in their job and their boss doesn't tell them anything. And then all of a sudden when their, their fitness report comes along or their um, grades evaluations come along, they're not that great. Well, that person probably has not con conveyed to their boss what they've accomplished. <laughs> they've just presumed the boss knows everything they're doing. And I think women can be this way a little more than men, maybe. I know I, there's studies that show that. We don't like to necessarily go toot our own horn or tell people, here's what we've done, but you've got to be communicative. communicative. So I learned the power of communication because I failed um, in delivering what my boss needed to understand where his programs were. And he only had four years to get this big agenda done. So uh, there's a lesson and a lot of lessons in there and I learned them the hard way. <laughs> I'm happy to share them so other people can avoid those kinds of failures and they can find their own failure and not have to repeat mine. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.